Whenever Neil comes up to speak, I'm, I always think of Apollos. Apollos was a uh, speaker who was known for his eloquence. And when Neil speaks, I, I hear his eloquence and uh, wish I had the, uh, that, that poetic way of speaking that he, that he has. Uh, some struggle with his accent. I don't have a problem with that. I living living in Fiji for 15 years or so. There's a very similar accent. So, uh, brother, I understand you perfectly. So, I understand the accent and love hearing him speak. Um, also, he said something I want you to try to remember in. Um, as he spoke before the, the uh, fruit of the vine, he gave that illustration of uh, the, the uh, oh, let me think. I know <laughs> Secretary of State. I remember exactly what he said. The Secretary of State, who, who was the Secretary of State because of the uh, will and good pleasure of the President of the United States, and he illustrated that. We, too, have a position, and he named some of those positions that we have not by our own power and strength and ability, but because it's been conferred upon us by God or, by, or through Jesus. We're going to look at a passage in a moment, and we're going to see another, actually two things that God has placed upon us and uh, two other privileges that we have. So look for that in just a in a, just a few moments. We're looking at what I'm calling the lamp stand at central. And this we began we began the book of Revelation last week. And the reason I entitled this a lamp stand at central, the lamp stand in Revelation, the book of Revelation refers to the church. It refers to us. In verse 20 it says and the seven lamp stands are the seven churches. Referring to the churches. And as we get when we get to those in chapter two and three, we're going to see that we, too, are lampstands. It's not just these seven churches, but it's every church. And so the natural response is, as we read these things, as we look at these, is to focus on ourselves, focus on the lampstand and not the one who stood in the midst of the lampstands in verse 13 we'll see that Jesus is standing in the midst of the lampstand. And it's a very, very natural and almost automatic response as, as God begins to unfold this mystery for us to focus in on ourselves and focus in on the lampstand. Uh, this first chapter is going to help us with the foundation of this study, the foundation of the lampstands. And the foundation, as we pointed out last week, isn't centered in the lampstands, is not centered in what we do, it's not centered in what we don't do. It's not centered in what we avoid doing. And I want to state that that's important. It's important that we study God's word to find out what we do. And it's important to study God's word to find out what we should not be doing and to make those changes. As, as Neil talked about, saying I'm sorry and making the changes in our life. We should not. Uh, it's important to do that. But the foundation is not those things. The foundation, the center, the focus is on Jesus. And we do those things or we don't do those things out of our center, out of our focus, out of who Jesus is. And I'm not sure exactly how to say that 
any better. And maybe over the weeks I'll, I'll be able to make that clear. But we we'll operate not out of ourselves, but out of Him. And when we do that, then we will do the things that we should do and not do the things that we should not do. If we, po- if we focus on ourselves, if we center in ourselves, we'll find ourselves soon in the middle of legal, a legalistic set of rules instead of living out that life of love. You will find yourself in a great deal of frustration at the lack of your spiritual progress if you focus on the wrong thing. And so, again, it's essential that we keep reminding ourselves all throughout this study where our center is and remember to work and operate out of that focus and out of that center. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7 today. And um, I would like to read this together. And the way I like to do this, if you're able to, I'm going to read a portion of it and have you repeat, uh, repeat it after me. And if you're physically able to and you would like to, I'd like for you to stand during the reading of the scripture here. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. So if you'll stand, if you're able to, and repeat the scriptures after me. Even though we're starting in verse 4, we're going to back up to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. And take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the, Asia, in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every I will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I think it's important for us to remember that we are focused on God's word, his scripture, and to read that together out loud, I think, is a blessing because it says there, it, there is a blessing attached to these words as we read them and as we hear them and as we take them to heart. And I hope that we'll do that in, in, as we not only read this passage, but in all our readings of the scriptures. As we look at this, we're entering this little section here. It's a classic way of writing letters in the first century. Our, the, write, the writer is stated who is writing. 
who it is written to is stated. And then there's usually a greeting and a prayer. And this is common. You'll you see this in Paul's letters as he writes. But if you read uh, if you're if you read translations of ancient letters, this is exactly what what the uh, early people would do as they wrote their letters. And I think what it does helps us in what I want to, to help us do as we go through this series is get uh, the feel the reality of real people in a real place in a real time of history. It's a strange writing as we go through Revelation and, it, and it's almost would be tempted almost to look at it as a, a fantasy writing or something. But this wasn't. This was a real person who wrote this to real people for a real reason at a real time in history. And it's a real message from God, as it says here. Let's look at from whom and to whom this was written. We're looking at the person in the place right now. And the writer uh, identifies himself as John. And is, it is most certainly the Apostle John. A few people think that it was, there was another John during this time. John is a, a, well, uh, is a common name. And there's uh, you know, little writings about uh, a person named John, an elder John, that they think may have been a, a different John. But most people, and myself included, believe this is the Apostle John that we know from the, uh, as one of the twelve that walked with Jesus. He moved to Ephesus in the 60s, in the, sometimes in the uh, 60s, right before the uh, uh, Jerusalem uh, fell in, in A.D. 70. Uh, he is, was said to have brought Jesus' mother with him to Ephesus. And today, if you look south of Ephesus, there's a big mountain there. And if you go up to the top of that mountain, there's a, a house. And they say this is the house where Jesus, uh, Jesus' mother lived. That when John came, he brought Mary with him. And I went up on that beautiful mountain. And uh, it was a very peaceful, beautiful place. And walked through the little room, the little house that was supposed to have been Jesus' mother. I don't know how we can know that for sure. Uh, but but Jesus did ask John or, uh, or really tell John to take care of his mother when he was on the cross. And so if she was still still living and he moved to Ephesus, I have no doubt that he brought her with him. But at this time in history, it's around 80, maybe uh, uh, 90 A.D., somewhere around that time. John is a very old person this time. He has to be in his mid 80s or early 90s. So we're, we're getting this from a, an, an elderly man. And I was thinking this is this is one of the very few people who was still alive, who actually had walked with Jesus. He's, he's the only apostle alive, but he's one of the few people alive who actually knew Jesus personally and talked with Jesus and spent some time with him. So it's written from John and it's written to the seven churches of Asia. And this is a place, uh, not our Asia today, the continent of Asia, but the Roman province called Asia. And it's the country that we call Turkey today. And then some of you may uh, like maps. So let's put up that map on the screen there, I think. There you go. And just to give you a sense of where we're talking about, um, Iraq, Iran to the uh, east there. You can see that Syria. That's all in the news today. The country of Turkey is south of the Black Sea, a little north of the Mediterranean Sea. And Istanbul, where you can see right there, there's a strait that goes right in the center of Istanbul. And all the uh, land to the west is Europe. And the land to the east is Asia, what we call Asia today. 
That area that is what that we call Turkey was called the province of Asia. And the area that the seven cities are in or is in the western part of there. You can see it on the map there. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So this is the area that he uh, wrote these letters to. Interestingly, at this time in history, this was a stronghold of Christianity. If you want to go to a place where the where the church was strong, you know, if we said today, I, I want to move to a place where the church is strong. Now, some of you grew up in North Alabama. You've never left North Alabama. The church is strong here. <laughs> this is a strong place. Some of you have lived uh, at, at other places overseas and other uh, parts of the world, but uh, and uh, parts of the country where the church is not so strong. But here, you know, we, what do we call uh, Nashville? Is that the uh, the Mecca of, of, of the churches of Christ or whatever? Uh, but, you know, this is where there's a lot of churches in this area. Well, in the first century, if you want to say, I'm going to move to where the church is strong. This is the place that you'd go to. It wasn't it wasn't Israel. It was Turkey, what we call Turkey today. And by this time in history, the church had expanded. It had made an impact on the world. And especially again in this area right here, some have estimated. And I don't know how they get these numbers somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of the people in this country of Turkey, in this province of Asia, were Christians by 150 A.D. That's incredible. And we do know that a governor of Bithynia, which is that area right under the Black Sea, there was a governor, Pliny the Younger, and he complained. He wrote a letter to the, uh, to the emperor complaining in what, about 112 A.D., saying that the pagan temples are empty because of Christianity. And he said, what are we to do? The temples are empty now because these people are becoming Christians. And so we know there was a dramatic impact of, of this part of the world. Those cities were very important. They had some political importance, especially Ephesus and uh, Pergamum. Some had that uh, were important because of financial resources, Laodicea, for instance. And when we get there, we'll talk about how wealthy they were. They were all important because they're right on a trade route. The major roads ran right through these uh, cities and, and uh, they uh, connected to all the other regions of Asia. Uh, all of these cities, except for Thyatira, were a part of a uh, was a special group of uh, cities where the where the officials of the province of Asia would meet each year. A political, um, you know, they'd come together to talk about politics and what they were to do and procedures and policies and everything. And they would go to one city, Ephesus, one year, and another city, Smyrna, the next year. And this was true for all the cities except Thyatira. In um, Acts chapter 19, verse 31. I found this little phrase interesting. It said, even some of the officials of the province, that's who these officials, important people were, friends of Paul. All right, Paul's in Ephesus. And when we get there, it'll be, it'll be a great story as we walk into Ephesus and see what went on. But Paul was about to be lynched, literally. And... Uh, uh, he wanted there, this group came into the amphitheater and they're screaming and yelling and they're all upset. And Paul says, let me just go in there. Let me go in there and talk to them. And everyone's saying, don't go in there. You're, you're man. They will tear you apart. And it says even some of the officials of the province, some of these high up people went to Paul and said, who were his friends? And said, don't go in there. Don't go in there. And he, he listened to them. 
And uh, and so one reason this is important is because as this as a letter came to each city, it would be copied before it went on to the next city. And that copied letter then could be spread out to other uh, areas around them. Uh, over in Laodicea, you have Colossae right down the road. You have Heropolis. The churches were there and other uh, cities. And so it was a very rapid way of getting the message out to this whole province, not just the, just the cities that it went to, but the entire province got these letters in a very short time. He then sends a greeting in verse 4, and it's this dual greeting of grace and peace. One comes from the Greek language, grace. The other one comes from the Hebrew, uh, peace. And I've spent a lot of time in the past speaking on this, so I'm just going to touch on it because it's here. Uh, and... Um, and not spend too much time on, on, uh, on these two words. Grace. What is grace? It's God's good gifts that we don't deserve. God graces us. He gifts us. He gives us good things that we don't deserve. And, of course, immediately we, immediately we think about salvation. God's grace of salvation. And that's true. But that's not only what he gives us. He adopts us. He gives us power through the Spirit he gives us new life. He gives us guidance. He gives us joy. And we could go on and on all the good things that God gives us. And so when John begins this, he says, grace, I want you to think with that one word. I want you to think about all the things that God does for you. And so it's just not howdy duty. It's not just, you know, dear so-and-so, hello, uh, greeting. But it, it's a word that should connect you to the concept of all the things that God does for us. And then he says grace and peace. And this word peace doesn't mean absence of uh, struggle or absence of war, but it means a wholeness. It means a completeness. It's a calmness and security in the midst of the storms of life. Things are going bad and, and a lot of things were going bad when John wrote this. But there's a calmness and there's a security. There's an inner confidence of living our life the way it is meant to be lived. That's what peace is. This is the way God created us to live. And we live out our lives the way God created us to live in the midst of turmoil and chaos and pain and suffering. And God says, that's my peace because you can handle all those things with me. And then he goes into his prayer. This is where we center in on where, where we need to be centered. Starting in the end of verse uh, 4 through the end of verse 6. He says, this grace and peace comes from who is and who was and who is to come. Do you remember last week, one of our principles of understanding this, this letter, and especially when you start getting into chapters four onward, becomes very, very symbolic. It's symbolic at this point, too. But we see the, the symbolism. And one of the keys, one of the principles to interpretation is to find the echo that we're hearing from other scriptures, we'll see some things, we'll hear some things and we'll go, oh, that reminds me of something. And you go back and find out what that reminds you of because because he's connecting us not only with this letter here, but every other book in the Bible is connected to uh, Revelation. And so we hear from him who is and who was and who is to come. And immediately that reminds me of Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three is the context of the Israelites. They've been suffering in slavery for uh, 400 years. They've been in Egypt. Moses is on the mountain. You'll remember the story if you've read it. 
and he sees this bush burning, and he's, it looks like it's not being consumed. And so he goes up there to check it out, and he comes in contact with God. This is the way that God spoke to him through the burning bush. And he says, I'm going to send you to, uh, I'm going to send you to eat back to Egypt, and I want you to tell the Pharaoh to let these people go. I'm going to, I'm going to bring them, I'm going to bring the people, your, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, but when they go, when I go there, he begins to make a lot of excuses, just like we do. But he says, when I go there, who am I to, what am I to say? Who, who is sending me? And God says to him, I am, tell them, I am who I am sends you. I am has sent me to you. And that's exactly what he's saying here. This is the all present one. That, that, that was the point of. I am, I am continually present, the continually existing one. And we see the same context here. And it's interesting as you read this, how John wrote it from him who is and was and is to come, because those who know the Greek language say, this is bad grammar. This is not good grammar. Um, Janice, if Jan, I don't know if Janice is here today. But yeah, there she is. This is bad grammar. So sometimes bad grammar is good. Because we can use bad grammar to make a good point. Paul did this on occasions. He would use bad grammar to get your attention. And that's what I do when I use bad grammar. I'm just trying to get your attention (laughs) to make a good point. And that's what he does. So instead of saying from him who is, and the English translates it uh, grammatically correct, he says from he is, from he is, or it could be translated or from the being one. Or he could say, this is from the continuous is. It's in the tense where it's just the continuous is. And all those ways of looking at it is difficult to understand. But he's trying to say, this is from the one who always is, who continues to be is, who is the being one. He is. And he does the same thing with the next phrase. Instead of saying from him who was, he says from he was, from he was. And so he's trying to emphasize here the, the nature, the eternal nature of God. This is not a God like, like the uh, Romans had that came and went or, you know, came, they were popular for a while and then they kind of disappeared, one of the hundreds of gods. But he says this is the eternal God, the continuous God, the forever God. But more so, connecting it back to uh, Exodus, he's saying you're about to live through another deliverance. There was a deliverance. I sent Moses to deliver the Egyptians, the Israelites from the Egyptians. And you're about to live through another deliverance. The I am who handled Pharaoh is the I am who will handle Caesar. And to us, that makes we have nothing to do with Pharaoh. It's just, you know, something we see in museums and the Caesars are nothing to us today. We just see them in museums. But when we get to these stories, when I start showing you the connection of of these Caesars and how they treated the people and the torture that they went through, maybe it'll become more real to you. And you'll see that the I am handled Caesars who, who were literally taking children away from parents, who were taking the life away from people, who were torturing people. To the point they're saying, how long is this going to last? And the message here is the I am is going to take care of Caesar. 
just like I took care of Pharaoh. And he says this grace and peace also came from the seven spirits that are before the throne. I believe this is the Holy Spirit. Seven speaks of completion or perfection. And so he says here the spirit has a perfect ability to take the father's will and to do the father's will. And so I'm trying to listen to an echo here. And this may or may not be a direct echo, but it does remind me of Zechariah chapter uh, four, uh, verse six and ten. And you'll even though you may not recognize, you may say, well, what does that say? You'll recognize what it says when I read it to you, when I mention it to you. He says in that passage, he says that his will would not be accomplished by might or power, but by the spirit. You have heard that. We've sang that. My, your, 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 uh, my, my will, God's will, will not be accomplished by might or power, but by the Spirit. And then he describes that Spirit in verse 10 when he says, And the Spirit are the seven eyes of the Lord. And I think what he's saying there is he sees perfectly. God sees perfect. He doesn't miss anything. The seven eyes, he doesn't miss. It's this perfect, uh, perfect number again. And so God sees all. He knows all. He sees it all. And he and, and so nothing escapes his attention. Also over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 11. Let me get over there and read this to you. 11 verse 2. There are seven things about the spirit that he that he mentions here. He says the spirit and he's talking about Jesus. And he says the spirit of the Lord will, number one, rest on him. And then he describes it as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so whether or not this is talking about these passages, it does remind me of this perfect, perfect spirit of God who sees all and does all. This spirit is before his throne, and that means he's ready to do the Father's will at any time, at all, all times. And then he says, and from Jesus Christ. And he mentions him last. Here we have the Trinity. We have the Father. We have the Spirit. And we have Jesus, the Son. And I believe he mentions him last because the rest of the chapter and really the rest of the book in many ways is about Jesus. There's three descriptions and three accomplishments of Jesus mentioned here that directly affect us. I'm going to pair them together even though they're separate in the reading. Let's look at them together. First, he says, he is the faithful witness who loves us. Jesus is the faithful witness who loves us. Now, let me stop here, here for, a mo- for a moment. Those who know me know this. There's a sermon on this. The faithful witness who loves us. And there's a sermon on the next one. That, and, it's, and I could, as you know, do a whole sermon on the faithful witness who loves us. But what I'm going to try my best to do, instead of stopping there and spending a, 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 an hour, 40 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever on it, I'm trying to build on it just like this book does, because we're going to see him, the faithful witness who loves us all throughout Revelation. So I'm just going to touch on it this morning, briefly touch on it this morning. He's a faithful witness who loves us. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that he only says what the father tells him to say. He only does what the father uh, tells him uh, to do. Uh, Over in Second Timothy Uh, Chapter three, there's kind of a song there and it says something like this. Even though we are unfaithful, he is faithful. We don't sing a song like that. He is faithful. uh, We're unfaithful. Something like that. And that's from Second Timothy, chapter two, verse 13. And so he's saying, even when we're unfaithful, he's the faithful one. And a great 
great part of that faithfulness, that testimony that he gives us is this. I love you. He loves us. And we've spent a lot of time, especially when we were in First John, talking about what that word meant. And I'm not going to go into it in depth right now. But it's in the tense, the present tense, which means he loves us now and he continually loves us. This is not just a one-time love, but this is, this is the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, to continually love us. I believe that many of us still have the pagan memory of Zeus in our system. Of Zeus, who, who was called the one who is and was and is to come, by the way. To look at Zeus and say, but how can God, how can Zeus love us? And the answer is he can't. All right? If you study Zeus, he can't love you. He, he kind of despises you and puts up with you. And we have that memory in our society that that's how we look at God. And yet the scripture tells us over and over, no, he loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his son. He sacrificed for you. He wants you into his fa- in his family and so on. And so here again, he says, just introducing us, he says, he's the faithful one who loves us. He's the firstborn from the dead who freed us from our sins by his blood. What this means is this. He was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And and this is proof that we're freed from our sins. Um, Let me see something and find something here real quick. My son and I were at a ball, a grandson's ball game. Oh, where is it? Message. All right. Here it is. And a question was asked on the on Internet site. Uh, what happens after we die? What happens after we die? And you, you get all the different um, answers to that. And Matthew said he began by saying something like this. Um, you get to be with a loving God or you get to be separated from him. And you would not believe the response he got from that. All negative. He has scored negative points on Reddit. (laughs) The way they do it is you have positive, negative. And people who replied, nah, they got positive points. And people who said other things to him, negative things, got positive points. Everyone's like, thumbs up on whatever. And so Matthew would reply with the scripture. And guess what he got on the scriptures? Negative points. Just put a scripture out there. And guess what happens? The world will look at you and say, you're wrong. One man said this. Or one person. I don't know if it's a man. And this is uh, asking the question, what happens after we die? At the instant instant of death, every neuron in your brain fires simultaneously. The electricity in your brain forms a complete circuit. Objectively, it lasts for a fraction of a second. Subjectively, you could exist in that moment for a thousand years. <laughs> I wasn't trying, to, wasn't trying to tease the person, but it's like, wow, what were they on? Uh, but, but no, but here's my point. That, that got ten thumbs up. Positive ten. Matthew puts a scripture in there, he gets negative ten. Or 13 or whatever it is. And I asked this question. How does this, you know, if I was sitting with this person, how do you know this? 
How do you know that you're that objectively that everything, whatever, forms a complete circuit in your brain and it will last for a fraction of a second. But subjectively, you're going to be in that moment for a thousand years. How do you know that? And it's what I've said many times in the past. That's philosophy. That's just throwing out ideas. Well, maybe this is it. Maybe is that it? And so you ask me, how do you know? How do you know that when you die, you can live with a loving God forever? Or you can be separate from him? How do you know that, Alan? And my answer is this. Someone went there. Someone died. And he is now the firstborn from the dead. He's come back. And he said that. And that's why I believe. That's why I know we can be with a loving God. And if you take away the resurrection, if you're able to take away the resurrection, if you're able to prove to me that God, that Jesus never existed or he never was raised from the dead, then you have you've taken away my faith. And I've studied it. I've looked at it. I've tried to examine it. Am I wrong? Am I actually wrong that there was never a Jesus? And I've approached the the study that way. Maybe there wasn't a Jesus. And I keep coming up and I don't know what God's going to do with all those children in Turkey that never hear about uh, Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do as far as pain and suffering, how he's going to fix things. I don't know. But I know that he said this. I came back. And you can be with me forever. And don't worry about that. I'm going to fix it all. And my my question is, well, how? How? And he said, you don't need to know. Your brain's not big enough to know how I'm going to fix it all. Your brains would compl- uh, uh, form a complete circuit and fry if I told you. <laughs> if I told you how I'm going to fix it. Yeah, I, you, I don't know. But this is where my, where my faith is anchored, is that there is a man named Jesus Christ, and he was the firstborn from the dead. He came back, and he said, listen, just connect with me. Believe in me. Put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. Be, be mine. Be, be, be wed to me. All the things that we talk about. Enter into death with me in baptism. Come to raise a new life. That's where you need to focus. And let all the questions of life in eternity put there in my hand, not yours. You just live for me. That's it. And when I see that, and I say the firstborn from the dead... Then I can say, and he freed me. He opened up the door. The word literally means to, like a, a lock on a, on a key on a lock. You've opened up the door and you're free. I wonder how many of us are still standing in the prison cell with the door wide open. We're still kind of standing in the midst of our sins. And the door's open. He says, I freed you from your sin. Get out of there. And then he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he's made us to be a kingdom of priests. And this is what. Neil reminded me of when we were, we were talking the fact that he when he was talking, the fact that he was a ruler over all the Caesars of the earth is evident all throughout this letter. As you read out, read this letter, the one who seems to be the ruler of the earth, the Caesar, God is saying, no, he's not. He's not the ruler of the earth. As much power and might that they had, the, they're, they're under the ultimate ruler uh, of, of the of, of the heavens and the earth. It's an echo of Psalms 89, verse 27, where he says, And I also will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. But here's the interesting thing. 
We too are rulers. We too are rulers. The literal word there, where you, when you read it, he made us to be a kingdom and priest. Could be translated, he made us, it doesn't say kingdom and priest. It says, it can be translated kingdom or king. It means the same thing. And it can be translated this, he made us king priests. Or they didn't have this when they wrote back in this, you know, we have a, what's a backwards slash king slash priest. This is what we are. It's called... Um, not opposition, but apposition. When you have two words, two phrases side by side and they support each other. My friend, Sue. All right. That's opposition there. My friend is Sue. Sue's my friend. Got it? All right. So here, king is a priest. The priest is a king. That's, that's what he's saying here. They're together. Both of these things. And he made us to be king priests. He made us to be kingdom priests that's what we are he created us to be that and and the echo goes back to uh, exodus chapter 19 verse 6 they're at mount sinai amazing things are going on there i'm not going to go into any detail at all but in verse 6 jesus uh, god says to moses he says, I've, I'm, I've brought you here. I've carried you on eagles, eagles' wings. I've brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, he's talking to all the Israelites here, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. If you just obey me. They didn't. And so that is fulfilled in the new covenant where Peter says in first Peter chapter two, but you are a what? A royal priesthood. A whole, yeah. We are royal. We are the kingdom priests. We rule. God did not save us to be peasants or groveling slaves, but he created us to rule with him. And then he ends with a doxology. A hymn of praise, verse 6, 7. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. That coming with the clouds speaks of judgment. We'll get there more later. What exactly this means is we're just going to read it right now. But he's talking about coming with judgment. What all these other things will mean will come clear as we go through here. But let me let me make some application so we can end. Three points of application. Number one, we need to be strategic in our work. This letter, and I, I saw this uh, as I traveled through these seven cities. This letter was strategically placed in these different cities. And as I was there, it, it, was, it, it was almost like a flash of insight. I thought, if I were in this city of Ephesus and I got this letter from John and I read it, I sat there and read the, 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 this letter. And the person who brought it said, and now I need to bring it up to Smyrna. My response would be, uh-uh, not until we copy it. You stay here, you can stay with, uh, you know, you can stay with the dittos and. They'll take care of you. They'll feed you. And we're going to have uh, someone with good handwriting, not Brandon, someone with good handwriting 
write this letter down before you're allowed to go. I know that happened. It had to have happened. They weren't like read the letter. Oh, yeah, okay, get it out of here. But they wrote that down. And then that letter was passed from that city just south of Ephesus, another little city called Prien. And there was a church there. What do you think happened when they brought that letter down there? Or they told them there's a letter from John there. They came up and guess what they did? They had it copied, too. And they read it. And so strategically, these seven cities were chosen so that God's message could be taken not only to that city, but to the whole province of Asia. And I asked myself as I thought about that, what strategic plan do we have to share the good news throughout this community? What strategic plan? Do we have a strategic plan? What are we ready to change in our lives to reach other people? Are we content? Are we comfortable to just go with the flow? I'm a kind of go with the flow kind of guy. Just by nature. Are we content with that? But it seems here that John, or actually Jesus, was strategic in spreading his message throughout that province of Asia. And so we need to consider that. How do we need to be strategic? How do we need to be strategic in maturing? And we have some of this. In maturing the people. We have some plans. We have some classes. We have a great group, uh, the Adult Education Committee who make strategic plans on how to teach. All right? Do we need to do more or not? Second, be comforted with the help of God with the help of God. You know, God is not sitting on the sidelines watching and waiting and saying, "Well, let's see how history unfolds here." God isn't doing that. He presently loves us. He is the one who is and was and is to come. This encompasses all the titles and names of God, describes him. He continually loves us. He's continually there to help us through all our trials. Second Corinthians chapter one talks about him, the God of all comfort. And we're not in the midst personally of physical persecution like these people were. But we could be. We have some social persecution. Just go and do what Matthew did. Throw out something on the Internet. Throw a scripture out and there'll be social persecution. But you can be comforted in the help of God. And third, remember that God is in control. Terrible events were taking place in the lifetime of the people who wrote this letter. I will hesitate to share some of the stories that I've read and heard because I don't think they're good for the little ones in an audience this size. They're awful. But you can read them, you adults. You can do some research and find out. I'll share with some of the stories. But this was a world out of control. If you lived in Ephesus at that time, your life was on the edge. You never knew if your children would be taken from you, your grandchildren. I wondered why they didn't run. They didn't run. They stayed in Ephesus and they died. They didn't run. And someone said, well, where would they run to? I saw the mountain I would run to. There was a mountain up there and I think I could get away. I give it a good try with my kids and grandkids, but they stayed. They realized, and it had to be this, they realized God was in control. The world was out of control, but God was still in control. He's the king of all kings. And the amazing part of this is his plan of overseeing the world is to put Christians in positions of control. 
We have control. We are his kings. We're his priests. We rule. We worship. You rule your life. You direct your ways. You decide. You plan. You spend. You invest. You set goals. You're a ruler. But my question is, do you rule under the great ruler? Do you rule under the king of kings? And that's really what it all boils down to. Is your priestly service under the direction of the high priest? As you live as a king, do you recognize the lordship of the greater king? Look, he's coming. And you have the opportunity to be prepared more than any other group of people in the history of the world. Us in this nation have more opportunities. We have no excuse. No excuse. And I'm wondering with the Internet now, who has excuse? Who has excuse now? Look, he says, he's coming. Be ready. He who hears the words of this book will be blessed. And I hope you will be blessed. If anyone needs to respond to God's invitation for any reason to speak to the elders for their own confession, say, I'm sorry. Or if you need to come to him because you're outside of Christ and you want to come into that relationship as Angela did this past Wednesday, we're going to invite you to come forward as our elders will receive you as we stand and as we sing.